Hello and welcome to If Anyone Cares. My name is Riley James. This is episode 85. It is also my 22nd birthday. If you remember one year ago, Anna Bellinghausen was on my 21st birthday's episode. Uh, we're doing this the second year in a row. We might do this every year from here on out. Who's to say? But nevertheless, thank you to everyone that's going to reach out. I'm recording this today early. Because I'm not going to record. It has to go out at midnight, so I have to do this today. Besides the point, it is weird turning 22. People make a big deal out of 20 because it's a round number. Make People make a big deal out of 21 because of um, you know, the legality of it. But 22 is underwhelming. Or at least, you know, I feel like it might be tomorrow or today as you're listening. Anyways, it's not the point. Thank you for all the wishes that are to come. Thank you for listening to the show. It really means a tremendous amount to me. Today on the show is Sarah Loudon. She is um, an assistant coach for the Houston Dash of the National Women's Soccer League. Not about soccer, I promise you, so you can keep listening. The Kind of the timeline of, of Sarah's journey to the Dash and what happened when she got to the Dash was insane because I had coffee with her in January. By March, she's working for the Dash, and by May, she's managing the Dash as the head coach of the club. And the circumstances behind that are not great, but what turned out to be an incredible experience for her, and she talked about it on the show, and she talked about plenty of other things, including some differences between England and the United States and growing up and different things. I know we did that show with Eve, but it's nice to get a different perspective as well. Uh, Sarah was great. I met her in Kansas City. We talk about that a little bit. And ultimately, we talk about the death of Queen Elizabeth II, um, how she took it as an English woman, and ultimately what the Queen meant to the people of England and beyond. So it was a great show, journalistic show. I'm excited to put it out. People that listen to the show for the first time that are fans of the Dash or Dynamo, I used to cover your team. Hi, I used to cover your team. I hope you stick around and like the show uh, more than just this one episode, but ultimately, I don't get to pick what you listen to in your free time. We'll get to the show uh, here in just a moment, but things we got to get to at if anyone cares underscore on Twitter, at Riley James IAC on Twitter and Instagram. If you like the show, you can subscribe to it on Spotify uh, and other places too, like Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. If you th- get the show through iTunes, um, do the rate and review thing. Same thing with Spotify. They dropped a, a rating system. So rate it five stars. Say some nice comments about us. The show art is made by the incomparable Spencer Ware. The music is a collaboration between all good folks and IAC Productions. For Sarah Loudon, I'm Riley James. If anyone cares, enjoy episode 85. And thank you for listening to the show. On the line somewhere in Houston, Texas, is an assistant coach for the Houston Dash, originally from Newcastle, England, and someone I met in Kansas City, Missouri by accident. She has coached on the collegiate level, she has played on the collegiate level, and now she's coaching the professional ranks um, by way of Newcastle, England to Houston, Texas. Please welcome to the show, Sarah Loudon. Sarah, thank you so much for making time, and how are you? 
Riley, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm well. How are you doing? I'm I'm great. Uh, I want to talk very very briefly about how we met. Um, you and I met in Kansas City, Missouri. We did. <laughs> Feels like a long time ago now. Yeah, you and I met um, with. It was just it was weird. It was one of the last shows that we did um, in Kansas City. I was working for State Soccer Network at the time, and. I was just trying to find people because my bosses were out, you know, networking, trying to get sponsors for the show. Then it inevitably got canceled. And I was trying to get people on the show to make people watch the show to be able to see the sponsors that they were getting. So it was this weird kind of, um, you know, tango that, that the whole business was doing. But I, I met you and I ended up, you know, meeting you and, and, and hearing the accent and seeing the same area code. Like it was wild. Um, what do you remember from meeting me in Kansas City? Well, I remember, first of all, the reason that you actually um, stopped the group that I was with was because my uh, friend was wearing LSU gear, and I think that <laughs> caught, your, caught your attention. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, um, briefly, I remember, or vaguely, I should say, you know, somehow talking, and then all of a sudden we're being interviewed on TV or on camera. Um, so that's, that's what I remember. It was quite funny. Yeah, it ha- all happened very fast. Um, yeah, go Tigers! I, I, yeah, it's been a, it's been a couple of weeks with LSU football, but nevertheless, <laughs> uh, you are from Newcastle, England. Originally, yes. Originally, some some horrible news, some tragic news coming out of England that the Queen has died, and um, you know, seventy years in the throne, lived a. A very long life, if not mistaken, at 96 years old. Prominent figure over so many different world leaders. What does the Queen mean to you and what was her impact on England? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, it's difficult because at the end of the day, like, she was 96 and we knew this day would probably eventually be coming down the road, but you're never really ready for it. And I think we've, well, the majority of people in England have only ever known Queen Elizabeth II. Um, obviously, 70 years on the throne, took over 25 I think the biggest thing that I've taken from it is just she dedicated her life to service. And, um, you know, if you look back at the history of England, like she wasn't even supposed to be queen just because of the way it worked and her uncle abdicated and her dad took over. Then it kind of fell on her shoulders when he passed. And so just the fact that, you know, she served the country for that long. She evolved with the times. Um, We will definitely miss her. And I think um, Charles has some big shoes to fill, but he's also had a great mentor. So, yeah, it was really sad. Um, because it's kind of the end of an era, but um, what a life she had. What is the role, uh, and, and, and probably more importantly, what is the, the stature that the royal family has in England? Because we, are, we have moved into a, a position where you know, Parliament and the Prime Minister are, are making these, these big decisions. What is, the, what is left for English people to look up to the royal family? You know, it's a great question. Um, I'm not really sure how much how much say they have. I'm actually watching The Crown on Netflix. It's funny when something like this happens, you get more interested in... Um, I'm certainly more interested in the history of my own country now. Um, but I think, you know, she was the most famous woman in the world when you look at it. Um, and you can just tell that by the significance of the funeral and how many world leaders were there and kind of the, you know, the whole country shut down for a day and the proceedings went on for, it was 10 days morning and obviously the funeral was kind of a nine, nine hour spectacle. Um, but yeah, I just, you know, I was actually talking to somebody about this the other day who, 
is from America and they were talking about how um, Eng- England does pageantry like no other country. Um, but I'm not really sure. That's a good question. It'll be interesting to see if the, how the monarchy um, evolves. It'll be interesting to see if they downsize. It'll be interesting just because the Queen seemed like she was the one that kept them all together um, and what the impact of her passing will, will have on the rest of the family. I mean, seven years. We haven't, I, I certainly haven't dealt with this in my lifetime. You haven't. Most people have not dealt with a, a shift in leadership in the royal family in their lifetime. Like, it's just, it's an odd moment for all of the people who are, who are now having to deal with this, both English and otherwise. And the people yeah. where the, the queen had reign over, you know, certain other countries like Australia, New England, or New Zealand, to some extent Canada, like all of these countries are having to adjust. Right. I mean, again, it's a historic moment and, you know, we, we kind of don't know. We'll kind of see what happens. And like I said, it'll be interesting just to see how um, things progress from here with Charles being king and obviously... You know, the royal family have had their problems. Uh, they're just like any other family. But I think what we have to remember is, is you know, that with the Queen passing, like she was a mother, a grandmother, and um, although the establishment is kind of, you know, kind of different from the family, if you like, they're still a family at the end of the day. And it's kind of the family th- themselves and then the establishment. But yeah, I'll definitely miss the Queen for sure. Um, she's all I've ever known. And uh, we obviously, you know, will be watching Charles. What is the the preference among at least you I, I know you don't speak for the rest of the english people but what is the preference of the role of the monarchy going forward uh i'm not really sure to be honest i mean again I, you know i think it's a good question i'm not really sure what it, what it's going to look like whether they'll downsize whether you know what will happen with harry um you know it's just again what happens with um like i, I don't know I'll, it'll be interesting to see if like i said if they downsize but you know i'm not i'm not as uh i'm not really you know a monarchy fan per se but i did i did really have a lot of respect for the queen for what she did for her country and it had to be hard for her to put um duty above her family and that's what she did for, for 70 years and it had to be a lonely position to be in and obviously very different situations but two pretty big leadership changes in england um the last you know couple of months so it, it's you know english people probably need to just get back focus settle down focus on the footy Hopefully that comes back soon because, you know, the police have been pretty tied up with all of this. So, nevertheless, you um, are, are not in England. You live in America now. Uh, that had been fun to have that transition. When did you come over to the U.S.? Yeah, I came over when I was 18. So, I was at, uh, I was playing soccer in England for, like, an academy and a club team, Newcastle United Women. And Gateshead College was the academy. And then I came to America at 18 um, on a soccer scholarship to Mississippi State. And then later transferred to McNeese State. So, yeah, and then obviously progressed into coaching. Don't really know what I would have done if there wasn't a coaching opportunity. I always saw myself as a coach and always kind of knew that's the path I wanted to take from the age of 15. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's been an interesting journey, that's for sure. To go from Newcastle to Mississippi was a bit of a culture shock. Okay, I I live where McNeese is. So I, I've lived here for 20, I'll be 22 when the show comes out, like today. And... um. I've lived here my entire life. I've been a lot of places in this country, experienced culture and, and had different food and all this kind of stuff. But I've lived here. I'm currently in Lake Charles as we do the show right now. What is the, the, the difference between where you grew up in England than when you arrived and saw, you know, McNeese on Ryan Street? Yeah, I mean, I think, 
you know, it's two different worlds completely. I I would say what I loved about Lake Charles is just the, hosp- the southern hospitality. I feel like people will bend over backwards for you to help you out. I don't really feel like it's like that in England. Um, you know, like in England, for example, perfect example is gas is really expensive. So if, you know, you give a ride to somebody somewhere, let's just say you give a ride from somebody's house to the centre of Newcastle, you know, like people expect petrol money. Whereas in like America, like people will give you rides. And I think in college, like I used to always get rides because I didn't have a car, but like no one wants to take petrol money off you. And so like just the little cultural differences of like in England, people will snap your hand off when, you know, you give them petrol money. But in America, like they can't, you know, it's kind of a, a insult that you're actually giving them money for gas. So just, I would say there's just cultural differences that are, that still make me laugh. I go back home and I feel like I'm actually Americanized because of, obviously, you know, when you live at somewhere for so long, you almost, you know, kind of take on the cultural differences. But yeah, I would just say, you know, it's it's very different and it's hard to compare. There's things that I absolutely love about home. There's things that I don't like about home. There's things that I absolutely love about America and there's things that I don't particularly like about America. But um, Lake Charles was definitely a... a pivotal point in my life if you like I kind of grew up there at McNeese and I always have a special place um, f- for the people and the place and it's just obviously with the hurricanes it's been difficult because I know um, kind of the way Lake Charles is at the minute they're kind of start trying to rebuild it and it's going to take time right yeah no that's that wasn't fun we we uh we paused the show for a little bit because of that you know during during 2020 and then you know uh, whatever is impending in the golf right now is is obviously probably going to by the time this show comes out we're probably going to know um but nevertheless hurricanes are bad and and you know we just hope they they die out in the gulf nevertheless uh you moving uh from england to, to mississippi and then subsequently to to louisiana uh food was probably a, a massive part of the cultural shift what was some of the weirdest foods you had when you arrived in america well, first of all, I think I gained 15 pounds in the first year <laughs> I was in America. So it's kind of freshman 15 definitely happened uh, Definitely happened to me. But hmm, weird food. I would say frog patties. I was given that on Lake Charles. I did not eat it. Um, I think I also had a gumbo. Uh, I went to a gumbo. I don't know what you call it. It was at the Civic Center with kind of my teammates when I was at McNeese. And yeah, gumbo. I won it. I want to say, yeah, it wasn't really the gumbo that was the problem. It was the fact that there was squirrel in it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so just little things like that, you know, like things that, you know, in England we would never, never eat. Obviously, you know, frog's kind of a French delicacy, I guess. Um, but yeah, like I definitely enjoyed the food. But then there was also some, uh, I'm very picky with food. So that's probably not a good question for me because I'm very plain Jane. So um, there's a lot of things where I actually get made fun of because I'm so picky. But I've come a long way, that's for sure. I mean, have you enjoyed anything in Houston so far? Any of the Mexican places? Yeah, there's uh, Lupe Tortilla is really good. Um, but to be honest with you, I don't really get a lot of time to explore restaurants these days, <laughs> it seems, with being in season. But um, I do miss Boudin from Louisiana, so anytime I do go there, I bring it back. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to the whole Houston thing in a moment. That That's wild. Um, no, but it's just, it's, I'm just a fascinated that the world could be so small that you went to... You know, one Mississippi State and SEC school, and then to to Magnus, which is you know fifteen twenty minutes from where I live. Um, what was your overall experience of of playing collegiate soccer, and then you know the the move into coaching? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, listen, like four years as a collegiate athlete is not easy. It's probably the hardest four years of, of my life, to be honest. Um, very rigorous, but it kind of shaped who I am today. And I think I didn't really, couldn't really see myself, like I said earlier, doing anything different other than coaching. So it was kind of a natural progression. Like I was always obsessed with the man management side of things. And I've kind of grew up around uh, football or soccer, if you like, my entire life being from Newcastle. That's, you know, you kind of don't have a choice to get dragged up around it. The stadium is in the in the city centre of Newcastle, so you go shopping in Newcastle and bang, there's the stadium, and so you kind of fall in love with it. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like, again, like, I have, you know, um, a lot of respect for kind of the industry that I'm in, like, you know, sports is kind of very unpredictable, but um, yeah, I mean, the four years in college kind of shaped who I am, like I said, and um, I think the biggest thing in college is between the ages of 18 to 22, it's a very impact, impactful time, and Obviously, I've spent some time around the collegiate game and, um, you know, that's the biggest thing is kind of, you know, you're kind of helping shape not just soccer players, but you're shaping people. And that's the most important thing. And you might not see the benefits of it while you're there. But, you know, when people invite you to the weddings or christenings or their kids, like that's when you know you've made an impact. I mean, you, you, you said, you know, sports is unpredictable. You've lived in how many states since you moved to America? Five? <laughs> Yeah, four or five. Yeah, what Mississippi, Louisiana, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Texas. Yep. Yes, five. That man's wild. And we'll we'll talk about trust me. We'll talk about Florida and Penn State and all these other places in a moment. But I want to talk about uh, the Houston Dash. Uh, your first role with a professional club, right? Okay, so first full time role with a club, and you get there, and all of a sudden you're thrust into a caretaker position, being the 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 interim manager of the club. Uh, can you talk about kind of that whole thing? I, I know it's a, I know it's probably a touchy subject, but, but what was the the whirlwind of emotion like taking over a club you had been with for I don't know a couple months? Yeah, it was a little crazy, um, to be honest, and uh, it was totally unexpected. And I think the biggest thing at the time was just to kind of be what the team needed because they were going through more turmoil than we were as a technical staff. Um, and so the biggest thing was I just wanted to be what they needed in the moment. And if that was being calm, then it was being calm. If that was giving some energy, that was giving energy. But, you know, in the end, like, I, we had no idea how long it was going to last. And it ended up lasting 11 games. And um, it was a, a massive learning curve for myself and also the other staff, probably the players too. And um, they were great. The players were amazing. The staff were amazing. Just, you know, kind of give me some grace knowing that was the first head coaching role that I kind of got thrusted into and we had no idea how long it would be for. Um, but we kind of steadied the ship and, and we're in a good place now pushing for playoffs. I mean, I was, I was shocked. I, I, not to say that the, you, you weren't necessarily qualified for the position, but I was just so shocked because you and I had coffee before, you know, you were trying to make decisions on where to go and, you know, you didn't have the job. And then a couple weeks later, you get the job for the Dash. And then, you know, I see, I get the email blast from the Dynamo and the Dash. It's like, oh, yeah, she's the new caretaker manager. I'm like, what? what? <laughs> you know, just I was just so taken aback by the whole situation. And I, I found myself um, not only watching, you know, the matches, but following up with press conferences just to see kind of the the frenzy of it all because that's a, that's a huge story in in houston soccer because the dynamo for better or for worse aren't given a lot of people much to write about on the positive side but 
that whole situation, and now you guys are in a playoff position pushing for the playoffs. What's the season been like as a whole from getting there and, and, and arriving into a situation, and now we're sitting in late September in a completely different situation with a chance to, to make some noise? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of firsts this season. Um, obviously, we've had you know the first hat-trick in club history. We've had the longest unbeaten streak. We've had the first time we've beat kind of the top teams away, longest unbeaten um, amount of games in a season. Uh, so it's been it's been a historic season, but I think in the end, like no one will remember that unless we you know kind of make playoffs for the first time in club history. And we're in a great spot and we control our own destiny, and so we have two games remaining. I think it's just a testament, honestly, to the players overall. I think again, like you know, amongst the chaos, they were able to be cohesive and get together and kind of you know um, there could have been two, two ways, especially after. Um, the beginning of the season, there could have been um, a, the Challenge Cup. You know, we didn't kind of get the results that we wanted in the beginning, right before the regular season started. And I think they had two options: whether to crumble, losing their head coach, um, or kind of band together. And they ended up banding together. And I think it's just a testament to them, to be honest. Um, I'll say this: I'll say this more than once, but I really feel like it had nothing to do with us as a co- as a coaching staff. I feel like it's all them. At the end of the day, they step on the field, they put the ball in the back of the net, they defend and keep the ball out of our net. And so, again, it's just a massive testament to them, and I, I really want it for them, and uh, hopefully we can make it happen. I, I'm so happy that the the, the coach speak is, is multicultural. Um, that, you know, <laughs> you, you guys are saying you had... You'd like to think you had nothing to do with it. Obviously, coaching is a massive part of the game, and, and the the style and the tactics that you guys have implemented over the course of the season obviously has changed a little bit from coach to coach, but nevertheless, they're in a playoff position partially because of what the coaching staff has done. Um, that's something that we write about all the time. That's something that, you know, I understand that the players go out and play, but the the impact of, of what you guys do is, is, is massive. So, you know... The obviously the season is like you said normal if you don't you know make the playoffs, but ultimately there there has to be some uh, level of, of of pride you've taken from this season so far and just how everything has played out how how they haven't crumbled because of X Y and Z in training sessions right. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, like it's really hard to zoom out when you're in it. Right. Um, and as coaches, we're very, we're very results-orientated because that's what we get judged on. Um, but at the end of the day, like the process has been, like I said, the experience and the amount of learning that has been, um, that, I've, that we've all been able to do, to be honest. You know, those are experiences that you just can't pay for and you can't buy, I guess. And so I think it'll be interesting at the end of the season to kind of look back on that. But it's really hard when you're when you're in it to zoom out. And I think it was even harder in the acting head coach role to zoom out. It was like, you know, we beat Portland 2-0 at their place at Providence under, well, I think there was like 14,000 fans there, maybe more. Um, and that place was silent, you know, because the away team, Portland just don't get beat at home. It just doesn't happen. And, you know, like we win that game. And to be honest with you, like I was excited and relieved for maybe about an hour and then I was like, all right, we gotta you know, gotta move on to the next game and I think that's part of being in that role is it, it never ends. There's always the rub of coaching, there's always something to do, there's always something next. And so 
maybe in the future it'll be more of just kind of enjoying the wins a little bit more because you never know in this league when they're coming next because as you can see it's crazy with how tight the table is anybody can beat anybody and so I think it'll be really nice when the season um, comes to a close hopefully late in October to kind of reflect and, and look back on it but right now it's it's hard to it's hard to do that when you're when you're pushing um, for a playoff spot and um, you feel like it's not if we kind of have unfinished business right uh, I've in you know, all, kind of side question off that question or off that answer. Uh, Providence Park obviously is, is, is one of the crowning jewels of American soccer stadiums in this country. Did you, did you enjoy kind of that atmosphere and seeing it? Obviously, you know, stunning the crowd, silencing the crowd is, is amazing as you know the the visiting team. But just that that stadium could could you take a second to enjoy it, or was it just all business? Uh, did I take a second to enjoy it? That's a good question. Uh, when we went 2-0 up, maybe. A little bit. <laughs> um, which was late in the game. But I think, you know, again, like the environment like for women's soccer at Providence and then obviously Angel City, the Bank of California, those were two very unique places to play. Even San Diego Wave, they were playing at Torero Stadium, uh, which is obviously a college um, college stadium at USD. But the environments that we were able to play and like the women's game has come so far. And I'm just really happy that, you know, these players actually get um, to play in front of fans because they deserve it. And um, that game was definitely, it was definitely one of the highlights for sure, just because I think it was the shock factor of going in there and throwing out a new system and uh, Portland were unprepared for it. And um, I think that was just kind of, you know, the players bought into the plan and um, that was kind of a... And Nerve Reckon Week is is the acting head coach just for the simple fact that you know, there was some pushback in the beginning of playing a different system and is it going to work and do we have square pegs and round holes? And, you know, as, as a coach and as a technical staff, you have to, even if you know there's potential weaknesses within the system because there's weaknesses within any system, like you have to make sure that the narrative that you're creating for players is it's all positive, you know? And so I think, again, like that was, you know, answering a lot of questions from players, that was kind of a, a make or break week when I look back at it because if it had all gone square and it hadn't gone well, then I'm not really sure what the rest of the season um, would have looked like in terms of in the position that I was in. So it was kind of a big risk and it paid off and thankfully it did. I, I'm curious from the standpoint of you, you mentioned that, you know, American soccer, specifically women's soccer, is on the rise. It's on the rise all around the world. Obviously, the U.S. women's national team is has been a big part of that here in the States. But ultimately, there is a, a, a shifting culture um, to the positive for women's soccer all around the world. You were in the club environment in England growing up. What are the, and obviously that's, you know, a little bit ago, it, it's moved so, it, since 2015, at least in my perspective, it's moved so further ahead than what it was even eight years ago. Um, what is the, the difference in culture between English women's soccer and American women's soccer and, and how can, you know, they get better and learn from each other? Well, again, I think with England winning the Euros, um, it's kind of evolved the game in England because when I grew up, it was more of a man's sport and it was kind of frowned upon for girls to play. I mean, I remember when I was in primary school, like I wasn't able to play with boys and it's all changed now. Um, but I think like England winning the Euros is kind of, um, how could you put it? It's kind of like when the 99ers won, um, the US won, the 99ers won. And so I think, again, like England, you know, it's 
it's not just a win for England, like the Euros, like that's a win for the entire world in, in women's football because it's just going to create more um, structure with media, with um, resources for clubs, with resources for national teams, etc. And so I, I, I feel like um, the differences, you know, maybe it's the playing style. Um, I would say maybe the resources are a little bit better over here or they're getting better, especially with the college system. We don't have the college system in England, so you kind of go from potential academies to then go into the first team and I think that's one thing that America could learn from is the college system is great and I spent a lot of time in college it's not necessarily the best system to go straight to the pros and so maybe America can learn a little bit from that and creating their own academy systems where players don't have to potentially play in college they can go straight to pro and we're seeing that now a little bit more um but yeah I mean I think there's there's some really good differences um and then there's some very similarities and I think both countries can learn from one another there is a an interesting that you just said that England winning the European Championships is a win for the world. Is say in twenty twenty three when if, if say the U.S. wins that World Cup as they have won you know a lot of World Cups, would that be a negative for women's soccer, or is it better to say it's a positive for someone else to win? Say like the Netherlands, like England, like France. Well, I think the reason why it's a win for England and the world is because they won on home soil. Um, but I, I would just say I don't, I don't think that the US winning the World Cup is a negative for the rest of the world because I think the world are um, having to find ways to catch up with America. And I think we're seeing, like, even we'll see when England plays the US, like, how that game goes. We'll see when the US plays Germany, how that game goes. These games are coming up in October and November. Um, but I, I do think, you know, like, people have said like the rest of the world have caught up and I think the US has an amazing talent pool um, underneath kind of the, the senior team and I think the rest of the world is kind of um, you know is having to put structures in place to make sure that they have kind of a way to compete um, but again I, I, again I think I don't I think it's I don't think it's a, a loss for the rest of the world if if the US win by any stretch I think again like the more coverage that women's sports can get, especially women's football, like the better. To the point, I think the world would benefit from someone else winning the World Cup, but as an American, I don't really care. <laughs> I want to I win as many World Cups as we can. So, nevertheless, the, the England winning the Euros was, was great. Um, how did you experience that living in the States? Yeah, I mean, at the time we had an, uh, a player from the Houston Dash playing and starting for England at left back, and so... Again, like we were on the road, I believe we were in Newark, New Jersey, and you know, having England shirt on watching the game. And again, it's just it's really good just to see kind of how far the women's game has come in England, and and finally an English um, senior national team was able to actually win something. Um, so that was that was really cool. Yeah, it finally came home. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's but you you mentioned that you used to coach in the collegiate level. Uh, you coached at. Um, you, you were a grad assistant at McNeese, right? Yes. Uh, well, not really a grad assistant, a volunteer coach, but yes. Okay. So you, you coached at McNeese. You coached at uh, the University of Florida. You coached at Penn State. Uh, you have experience on, on power five levels of, of coaching collegiate soccer, and now you're coaching an NWSL team. What is the contrast of coaching collegiate athletes versus professional athletes? Um, I think, you know, like the... The difference in college to pro is that pro kind of their livelihood depends on their career. 
I think in college you can kind of get away with the kind of mantra of striving together um, for the common goal, if you like. And I think in the pro level you can still kind of do that. But at the end of the day, like, you know, like every player is trying to um, – it's their career, right? It's their the way they make money. It's their job. Um, so I think those are some of the differences. But football is football. I think um, that's the, the the one thing about college is you're always in charge of your players, no matter what. When they you know kind of leave your training facility, you're still in charge of them when they're in college. Whereas in the pros, once they leave a facility, they're you know they're adults and we're not really in charge of them. So um, that is the nice part is you don't have that kind of responsibility. Um, but the game's the same. I think the speed of play is a little bit different. Obviously, speed of play at this level is a lot higher than in college. And in the pro environment, you kind of have the cream of the crop from college in, in the pro environment. What is the juxtaposition of managing that these people are career-oriented players who want the best for their career but want to win as a collective? What is the, the juxtaposition and the responsibility as you – not only as an individual coach, but as a technical staff of merging those two things together. And how do you do that? Well, again, I think, you know, like if you look at the, if you look at the world of sport, like Messi needs Ronaldo, Ronaldo needs Messi. Right. And it's kind of like, look at our league right now, like within the teams, like we need other teams to be good because it makes us better. And so I firmly believe, like, it's kind of, again, like, the if England wins the Euros, like, the rest of the world has to be better because England's pushing and has won a tournament for the first time. And I think it's the same on the individual level. Like, you need you need good players around you that can push you to be better. And there's no way um, Messi would be the player he is without Ronaldo pushing him, right, and other players, other world-class players. And I think that's kind of the mentality is, is, you know, the players want to be the best, but I think at the end of the day, like, you have to have people around you that push you. And the perfect example of this, and this is kind of a silly example, but it's like when you ride the peloton, if you if you have you have a leaderboard and if you're competing with someone, for example, if I'm competing against a friend that's on live, like, I ride much harder than I do when there's no leaderboard. And so we all need each other in order to be more competitive and to push ourselves to, to limits that we would never push without yeah, no, I'm I'm doing. I I bought a bicycle last November, and I'm trying to get to 2,500 miles this year. And that that number is a glaring kind of goal that, like, I wouldn't ride it with it being so hot right now if it wasn't for that number. So I know I get that. Um, no, but pro- professional sports is, is such an interesting thing. I've covered uh, Major League Soccer. I covered Major League Soccer for five years. I've covered the NFL for for two and a half and college football for two. Uh, the, the, the staggering difference in professional sports to collegiate sports is they're playing in like this tribalistic manner of a co- for a college team. I mean, you were on the college level. You were around college, uh, American college football. You kind of get it, you know, at those universities like Florida and Penn State. Um, what is the, the main motivation for a group of professional players, specifically with your team, the Houston Dash, what do you guys harp on and preach about every single training session and every single game? When you say that, are you talking about like tactics? Are you talking about just overall kind of like, I, I hate to say like emotional motivation, like getting, getting those players ready to play the game because tactics, tactics will come right. Like you guys are building tactics 
those are professional players. They pretty much know their responsibilities, and you guys work on that. But to get them ready emotionally to to play a game, to go out there and 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 kick and and have the kickoff. What is the emotional motivation that you guys use? Well, to be honest with you, they're professional athletes, so I don't really feel like some of them need. Um, they don't really need as much maybe as maybe the younger players, but I would just say confidence is the biggest thing. Being able to, um, you know, kind of making a player understand that the work that they put in, the preparation that they put in, they should be confident. And I think that would be the, the biggest thing I would say is is if they have a coach or a technical staff that believe in them, that that is the number one. But we have players on our team that are gold medalists who've played in World Cups, who've played in Olympics, and those are the players that probably don't don't need anything because they've they've rose in big occasions and they know what they have to do but there's definitely some younger players that you have to inject with some confidence and um as a coach that's our job and sometimes you know like that could be if a player's not playing very well that could be if a player's playing really well like i think um it kind of it's kind of different depending on kind of the player and everyone's different you have to figure out what makes them tick Uh, it's kind of cliche to say but it is so true and that's our job as coaches is it's really honestly like (laughs) we talk about tactics a lot but at the end of the day, like it's about player management and it's about people management. And I think the biggest thing is just making sure that um, you have everybody everybody aligned. What is the the player management aspect for someone who's won so many different things on, on a professional level? How do you how are you um, managing them any differently than than any of the successes that they've had before? I mean, I lean on those players. I think I think it would be crazy not to. I mean, at the end of the day, they, they've played... When they go to their international teams and they come back to the club teams, like, you know, the the difference is probably massive. And so I'll lean on those types of players for, you know, kind of to get their thoughts, like get their thoughts on certain things, whether it's on the field, because they're they're on the field playing. They say a lot more than we do. Um, but yeah, even just off the field, like I'll get their opinions and, you know, kind of their thoughts. And it doesn't necessarily always mean I might agree with something but it's always I think it's always kind of to get curious you have to be curious and kind of getting their thoughts and their um yeah I mean I, that's what I would say like I'm a collaborative coach like I like to kind of know what our players are thinking and um I don't think that's a weakness by any stretch I think that's just being smart especially with the direction that coaching is going it's changing and I think honestly like coaches that coach through power will probably not be coaching um in the next maybe five to ten years because right now it's all about influencing people and, and the realm is changing and we have to be able to at the end of the day influence people and uh, it's not telling somebody what to do it's kind of influencing them to do something we've seen that in really uh jürgen klopp is, is probably the, the probably the most well-known example of someone who leads by um influence and yeah he hugs his players a lot after the game it's the butt of the joke a lot of the time but you can tell the 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 collaborative efforts and the the love and support in that dressing room is is massive um versus some other coaches who are bouncing around england and the championship in the premier league because of the the power influence and the, the power trip of of being a manager of a professional club in england um what is the future of coaching um specifically kind of at the nwsl level but um kind of this macro view of what's it going to look like you said you know it's five years it's going to be collaborative what do you think it's going to look like in the next 15 or 20 uh that's a good question <laughs> i don't know but if i knew i would i would uh i would probably be not i wouldn't be coaching <laughs> 
Um, but it's, it will be interesting. Like, again, I do think, um, I mean, I work with, you know, some people outside of, um, I guess, kind of coaching consultants. Like, I have some good friends that are consultants to coaches and, you know, they work with NBA teams and they work with WNBA teams and um, NFL teams. And again, like, it's about, it's about connection with, with people at the end of the day. And I do think that's, we'll see that more never, more than ever probably over the next five to 10 years, especially in the collegiate realm. Like things are changing with in college too, with name, image and likeness. Um, and again, I think it's, it's going to be about being the modern coach. Like as a coach, you're not just the tactician, you're the psychologist at times, you're the, uh, the motivator, if you like. And so you have, you wear all these hats, you're the artist, if you know, whatever it is. Like, I think, you know, we have to be almost like so dimensional as coaches, like especially in the collegiate realm and even in the pro realm, it's probably going to get to that. But I think we'll see the collegiate realm kind of follow in the pro realm. But again, I, you know, it's just a guess. I really have no idea. <laughs> if you knew that, you, were, you wouldn't be coaching. <laughs> that's, that's a great answer. <laughs> Let's talk about that. The, the impact of partnerships with um, MLS clubs. So obviously the Dash and the Dynamo are, are pretty well connected. Um, Angel City and LAFC, the Thorns and, and the Timbers. Um, what is the the benefits of being connected with an MLS club? Yeah, I mean, I think it's huge. Again, like you see the field that we play on, you see our training pitches, the facility that we have, like you know, kind of those resources that we're able to have. Like other teams potentially don't have that. In fact, I know they don't have it, um, and so that's massive. And again, like it, being able to collaborate with kind of an MLS team, whether that's players, whether that's coaches. Um, you know, probably something that we don't utilize enough, probably. But again, I think it's huge and um, it's it's good for the players. And, you know, it's good to see a lot of those MLS guys come out to the matches, too. It's just, you know, posting about it on Instagram, tr- trying to, to, you know, support publicly and, and, and raise awareness for those types of things. I've seen it with LAFC players out at Angel City games, obviously the Timbers and the Thorns. Um, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm leaving some out. Maybe Utah and, um, and, and Salt Lake. But, uh, you know, it's definitely happened with the Dynamo and the Dash, which is really cool. And, and it changes names all the time. But PNC Stadium is a beautiful stadium, and it's going through facelifts and renovations and changes and all this kind of stuff. So the, the Dash are definitely set up for success. And to finally have a playoff team, a playoff caliber team, I should say, um, is good news for everyone. The Challenge Cup win was, was huge a few years ago, but ultimately making the playoffs and winning the league is, is top priority but um no it's to, to see kind of the contrast and, and i know you probably can't say it so i will of san diego san diego great players great kind of um upstart team out of nowhere but the facilities at usd aren't as good as say portland's so that's kind of the the lack of parity in the league so far well, the good thing is, is San Diego have just moved to Snapdragon, so they have, you know, kind of that was always going to happen, and so I think they they just had the biggest crowd um, again in against Angel City, I believe. But yeah, I mean, again, I think the league has a long way to go, but you know, it's night and day from where it was, and I do think that uh, we're seeing with these expansion teams coming in and, and making a push for you know even playoffs. Oh yeah, I forgot that stadium was open. That's a beautiful stadium at San Diego State. Really, it, yeah. yeah, I, I yeah. watched, I followed the the them building it on Instagram and it's a beautiful stadium. So I'm, I'm excited to go see the updates. I, I missed that, but um, let's, let's kind of move to the future. I know we, we have, you know, limited time left. So what is the goal um, now? Cause as much as players are 
career driven coaches are certainly career driven. And, um, what is, obviously you're in the middle of a season right now, obviously not looking forward and, and, and trying to move on, but what is Sarah Loudon's want to do with, um, with coaching? Yeah. I mean, I think if you'd asked that question five years ago, I probably would have give you, give you, um, you know, a rundown of everything that was going to happen. But I think, you know, we're kind of talking at the beginning of this about meeting in the coffee shop and not really knowing what's next. And then all of a sudden you're thrust into an acting head coach role. I think you just realize like there's, you know, there's, uh, you can't really plan. Right. But I think, you know, in the end, like, I just want to, I have to be somewhere where my values align. I think that's the biggest thing. I have to be working with people where I feel like, um, again, my values align with the organization, my values align with the staff that I'm working with. And I think that's the biggest thing is, is being able to marry, marry those things in. And so that's something I'll, I'll be looking at. I think getting a taste of head coaching is nice because you kind of get the, the good and the bad and the ugly, if you like. And so you kind of, when that opportunity potentially maybe comes down the, down the line again, um, I kind of had a free head of it in the beginning and kind of know what to expect when the unexpected actually happened. But, you know, now kind of when it does happen, I'll actually be able to like choose when it happens, hopefully. Um, and so those are the things I'd say. I, I think the biggest thing is, is just taking it one, one step at a time and hopefully getting the dash into the playoffs or helping get the dash into the playoffs. And um, we'll see what happens down the road. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't rule anything out. And um, right now I'm just really happy with Houston. And, and like I said, hopefully we can, we can um, create some history in the next couple of weeks. Please, when you when you finish up the season, go try some restaurants and explore the city that you actually live <laughs> I in. I will. <laughs> uh, one last thing, we'll get you out of here on this. Uh, thank you so much for the time. Um, the U.S. play England in the World Cup on Black Friday. Um, do we do we have any shot to beat you guys? Um, <laughs> you're yeah, you're you're in America now, so. <laughs> I am. I have an American passport and I have a UK passport, um, but. I would like to say no. You'd like to say no. Yeah. But you know, Christian Pulisic and Weston McKinney exist and that's great. Nevertheless, Sarah, Sarah, thank you so, so much. Does, so does Harry Kane. <laughs> uh, so does Jordan Pickford. Um, nevertheless, we thank you so much for the time. Um, good luck the rest of the season. And uh, we, I, I hope you come back on soon. Perfect. Thanks, Riley. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. All right. For Sad Loudon, I'm Riley James. If anyone cares. <laughs>